If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historian and author Emily Brand, who's speaking about the Regency era for the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. Putting your questions on the topic to Emily, along with some of the most popular online searches, was our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Thanks so much for joining us today, Emily. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So as usual today, we'll cover the top questions put to Google, along with um, some really excellent listener questions that have come in over the past few weeks. And perhaps we could just start with the the most obvious question, really, the one most often put to Google on this topic. Uh, What and when was the Regency era? Okay, so in our our strict legal sense, um, we're talking about the period from 1811 to 1820, when George, the Prince of Wales, who's the eldest son of George III, acts as the Prince Regent when his father is incapacitated, really. He's declared mentally unfit to rule due to so-called madness. So it's almost a decade there. Um, And it's until King George III dies in 1820 and the Prince Regent finally becomes king as George IV. So that's where this name comes from, the Regency, um, more properly, probably the Regency period. But culturally speaking, this label encompasses a lot more than that. It's got much wider cultural reach and meaning. And here the dates are a bit hazier. Um, It often stretches back to 1789. Obviously, we've got the French Revolution kicking off all sorts of social and ideological change. Um, But incidentally, this is also when George III suffers his first major mental breakdown really and there's this subsequent political crisis so that ties in neatly with where um, the era begins and then that tends to run through either to the death of George IV in 1830 or right through to the reign of Queen Victoria. Um, So it's a subsection of the Georgian era really but as well as this political exchange of power that underpins it it's got a really distinct visual, aesthetic, I suppose. Um, So it's associated with all sorts of different types of styles, um, fashions, literature and radical ideas as well. So it's just, there's a huge amount going on. Uh, I think it's a really vibrant part of our history, really. 
Fantastic. Well, that's a lot of things that I hope we're going to touch on in, in this episode. Um, but taking it back to the very uh, start of that answer, you mentioned George III and this um, so-called uh, madness. What's known about the um, what's known about what incapacitated the king and when this question of the regency was first mooted? Yeah. So um, George III. I mean, just for a bit of background, he he becomes king in 1760 in his early 20s. He's this hugely interesting figure in his own right. Um, and he's best remembered for this mental illness, I think, probably. Uh, obviously, we see him cropping up in Hamilton and he's sort of all decked in gold and singing very sweetly about killing everyone. Um, so he's sort of presented in that way as the tyrant um, of, of the of America. And so he is known for mostly losing, as we might say, the American colonies and then subsequently going mad. So that's that sort of um, narrative there that remains quite popular. But as regards his mental illness, um, some historians think that he had his first attack in 1765. So right at the beginning, early years of his reign, really, and that he suffered with this intermittently throughout his life. But it was this prolonged and severe episode in 1788 that really crippled the government. Um, and he's confined to Kew Palace. He's raving, um, just nonsense, really. He's babbling for nine hours straight. Um, he's getting very aggressive, very sexually um, violent towards um, women of the royal court as well. Um, and... The doctors at the time, I mean, um, one great source for this is the online resources of Georgian Papers Programme, and they've been doing a lot of work on this. Um, and they, you can read here some of the private diaries, um, as well as the reports of the physicians who were attending him. And one, one of those doctors ju does just say, our king is a lunatic, I think, our king is mad. Um but this is obviously something that you want to keep under wraps. So the public wasn't necessarily aware. It was just they were um, sort of made aware of the king's long illness. So obviously in 1788, he's got all these sort of delusional ideas, um, very hugely at odds with his character as well as sort of a sober, popular, almost king of the people in relative terms anyway. But then in 1810, he gets this loss of his mental fac faculties, and the violence again, but then he starts, as the years draw on, he starts to go blind and deaf and he develops dementia as well. So it's this really dreadful suffering, I think, for both himself and also all of those around him. Um, as for the cause, personally, I don't think that we'll ever definitively know exactly what it was. Um, I'm quite sceptical of medical diagnosis at the distance of 200 years. Um, you know, we, that we really risk applying modern ideas and modern language to historic sources that might not quite tally up. So I think it is important to keep an open mind. The conclusion that has sort of taken root in the popular imagination is this idea from the 1960s that he was suffering from a blood disorder, um, sort of genetic blood disorder called porphyria. Um, but more recent scholarship is leaning back again towards psychiatric illness. So new research on his, the, his letter writing and doctor's notes and treatments are going back towards some sort of mania um, or really se severe 
severe version of what we'd now call bipolar disorder. So it's gone full circle, really. You know, back in the day, they were just proclaiming it as a madness. And we've sort of come back around to that idea of some sort of psychiatric problem. So clearly a very um, sad decline for for King George III. Um, and these bouts, as you say, led to um, political, political movements, um, questions of a regency. What were the political powers at play here and how did that lead to um, this regency period for the Prince of Wales? Yeah, so it's a very different answer, really, depending on whether we look at that first episode um, of the, the Regency crisis in 1788 to 89, or the act that's actually passed in 1811, but they are really intertwined. So we'll have to, we'll have to talk about both of them. Um, but in 1788, it's the first severe episode of this. Um, and we've got very clear political party lines developing around how to deal with it. So the Prince of Wales at this point is he's in his 20s, but he's already continuing this grand tradition of the Georgians of not getting on with your dad. Um, So he's pushing for an unlimited regency and he's backed up by all of his friends in the Whig party, most notably Charles James Fox. But then on the other side, we've got the Tory government who are in power. They're headed up by Pitt the Younger and they know that they'll be ousted if the prince rises to power. So obviously they don't want this to happen. So they are arguing for a restricted regency that won't allow him to change government and, you know, kick them out as soon as he gets in. So what we see is weeks of, well, months really, of really heated debate in the House of Commons and it's hugely reported on and the press is sort of hanging on every word because there's this great rivalry between Fox and Pitt. Obviously, the king recovers just in the nick of time at that point and it's sort of all moot point really. Then in 1810 and 11, revives again, but this time that urgency is really lost and it feels much less like like an attempt on the part of the prince to sort of usurp his father's power. So... The legalities have already been laid as well, so there's sort of less to argue about. And it's looking increasingly likely that the king's not going to recover anyway. Um, I think one surprising thing about when this does finally happen is that the Tories are still in power at this point, and they have been for pretty much the whole time. Um, And most expected that on receiving his powers as regent, the prince would, you know, go back to all of his old Whig friends and install them into power. So they're all sort of gleefully rubbing their hands waiting for this. But when he comes into his powers, he doesn't do that. So he alienates all of his old Whig friends, but he doesn't really cooperate too much with the Tories either. So um, he doesn't do himself or his reputation any favours there, I think, when it finally comes about. And when it does finally come about, um, we've got a a question here um, from Twitter, um, from Philip Richards. How, How much power did he actually have as regent? So during that final episode, um, what passes in February 1811 is the Care of the King Act. Um, And it establishes this regency, but it's based on the, as I say, the legal groundwork that had been um, discussed and laid down many years earlier. So there was no real crisis of government. And I think part of the difference is that at this point, the prince is nearly 50. He is the actual heir to the throne. Um, So it sort of seems like a more of a natural progression anyway. Um, 
no council is assembled to support or control him because of this, but there were some conditions and limits to his power. So he had to swear allegiance to the king. He has to promise basically that he will step down if the king recovers. He has to give over care of the king and of the household to his mother, Queen Charlotte. So there's sort of no room, I suppose, for any shenanigans going on there. Um, And importantly, his legal powers, he agrees that they'll be restricted for one year. So until that year's out, he can't really, not much has really changed for him, I'd say. You know, he can't give out peerages. He can't change the government. Um, He doesn't really have much say in the sort of what's decreed. But obviously that condition expires in 1812. And so from that point, he's pretty much king in all but name. Um, Although he does seem to devote himself to uh, more sort of artistic and pursuit of pleasures than politics anyway, I would say. Right. Well, it would be great to talk a little bit more more about that. What can you tell us about the Prince Regent himself? Yeah, so, I mean, from a very young age, I think by the time he was 20, he'd already shown that he was the antithesis of his father really um so he he loves a drink he's got a huge reputation for womanizing and promising women all this money um he can't control his debts at all he illegally marries a wildly unsuitable woman um in 1785 and he's just generally quite vain and greedy um so by the time he becomes the regent in his 50s, you know, people when he's young are hoping he's going to grow out of all of this behaviour, but it really just gets fixed um, at the heart of who he is. So all the caricatures of him, by the time he comes to power, he's very bloated. He's sort of sneering and picking food out of his teeth. Um, he's branded the Prince of Wales with an H because he's, you know, huge. So he's a very unpopular ruler and he's basically credited with setting an awful example to everyone um and on a personal level as well he he's a very he's an appalling husband and father and i think the public latches onto this um and and that does nothing for his reputation either you know he's very he's treats his wife terribly he's desperate to get rid of her and is very controlling of his daughter but then as uh, i've mentioned probably if there's one saving grace of his leadership I suppose is his dedication to the arts and um, how I think this may have encouraged the sort of flourishing of the arts that we see in this era so he's a great collector he um, is a great patron for architects and artists so he really contributes to this gorgeous aesthetic of the era even though he himself is this sort of flabby old old man by this point Um, but I don't think that does undoes all of his bad work in other areas, I would say. Mentioning this uh, debauchery or lavish spending on the part of the Prince Regent, did this influence the era as it, as it might do in popular um, perceptions of it or, or is that an unfair link? Um, I think there, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of factors going on at this point, sort of promoting the arts and all of this. But I, I think he, he must be credited with some sort of contribution there. Um, you know, as when he becomes... As I say, from being uh, a young man, he's hugely into, um, you know, lavish palaces and pageantry and all of this stuff. So when he becomes Prince Regent, he's suddenly got all of these new resources at his disposal and and he sets off on this one-man campaign to, to try and outshine Napoleon, actually, with all this sort of pomp and magnific- magnificence. Um, I don't... 
I don't think he was anywhere near doing that, but he certainly thought that he was. But he's consistently in debt because of this to the tune of hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and the problem is here, I suppose, that it he's contributing to this industry of the arts, but also it's at the same time destroying any of his final shreds of a good reputation. Um, so he becomes, by the time he becomes king, he's just notorious for not just extravagance, but senseless extravagance as it's seen. So he's throwing these lavish fates, um, celebrating essentially his father's madness. You know, when he comes to power, it's not very, uh, there's not much decorum there, but he's immediately being um, compared unfavorably then to what's going on with the starving workers in the north and all of this so by the time he dies certainly he's condemned in the obituaries just about by everyone I think very roundly as selfish and uncontrolled and that what he contributed to most was actually the demoralization of society by setting a bad example so I don't think he got too much credit um, in his own time for that for the arts fascinating stuff um okay so perhaps one more question then before we move on from the royals um you mentioned george um sorry prince regent as a father um and lk whitehead on instagram has asked uh, well and um, they'd like to know more about princess charlotte the heir and her death okay um yeah hugely interesting actually the the two women that are sort of involved in this question are really fascinating characters in different ways and that's first the um the wife of the prince of wales later the prince regent and that's his cousin caroline and they are brought together forcibly i suppose um and the prince of wales george only agrees to marry her to get his debts paid off so they marry in 1795 um their child is born, their only child, Princess Charlotte, is born the following year. And then in 1797, they, they separate. So this is sort of Princess Charlotte's beginning in life is um, her parents essentially hugely disliking each other. Um, and I think she had a very lonely childhood, especially after her parents split. You know, she's kept away from her mother on purpose. I think the prince is being very spiteful there. But then he's not really getting too involved either. So he's not making any effort to be an involved father. So she's brought up by her governess and servants, essentially. And because of this, visitors to see her when she's a child describe her as strangely sort of wild and unruly considering she's going to be the future queen I think this endears her to me quite a lot especially as this then continues into childhood so as she's you know growing up her dad starts parading suitors that he wants you know his alliances he wants to make in front of her and she's refusing to go um, and consider them and then she publicly rails against his political choices as well so she becomes into adulthood much more than a royal princess in the uh, popular imagination. She's this sort of beacon of hope for the future and uh, representing a new dawn for the sort of more tolerant politics that her dad is starting to ignore. Um, She's obviously got youth on her side as well, and she becomes a real rallying point and focus of public sympathy, especially after her final marriage her eventual marriage which was a love match to the German prince Leopold and they're just clearly devoted to each other and so it injects this 
much needed positivity, I suppose, um, into a public that's really increasingly disenchanted with the royals. But obviously, um, we don't have a Queen Charlotte the first. So she marries in 1816. She suffers a miscarriage, she gets pregnant very quickly again. Um, but then she dies after giving birth to a stillborn son in November 1817. So that's the Regent's royal line extinguished. Um, and it's followed by this huge outpouring of public grief. Um, there's talk of mismanagement by the physician who was attending her at the birth. And uh, the, this doctor then, just a few months later, goes and shoots himself um, while he's attending another woman in childbirth, which I just think is the most horrific situation to be in. Um, but that's her story. You know, it's a terrible story, really. But if she hadn't died, there would have been no scramble for the throne um, subsequently, or scramble to produce an heir, I suppose. And her cousin, who was Queen Victoria, wouldn't have existed. So that's just an example of, of one woman's tragic story and how it shifts the whole of British history, really, onto a totally different path. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think Austin is such a huge, if not the only jumping-off point for the modern audience's vision um, of the Regency era and I think it's important to remember it's hard to sort of look beyond ourselves but that's not always been the case We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings That frustrating thing your mum does or that silly thing you said in a meeting Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So taking us beyond the royals then, um, one person we've had a lot of questions about as well is Jane Austen. Um, it'd be great to talk a bit about her and, and, and you know, her, her role in representing this, this era. Um, Sam Williams on Instagram has asked, how true is Jane Austen in representing Regency society? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think Austen is such a huge if not the only jumping off point for the modern audience's vision um, of the Regency 
era. And I think it's important to remember, it's hard to sort of look beyond ourselves, but that's not always been the case. And so obviously Austin's, she's never been out of print, I don't think. She's not fallen from favour, but history sort of seems to go in these, um, well, there seem to be these explosions of Austin mania every now and again. So there was one in the 1870s and then another one from the 1990s, I would say, with all those um, adaptations. So we're still living on the back end of one of those, and I think that's important to remember. But for her novels, I think they are a brilliant glimpse, certainly at a certain type of life in the Regency era. So she captures, obviously, the etiquette of the time amongst a certain class, the snobbery, the way that finances just pervade everything and shape a person's life. Um, Often she is making very cutting social commentary um, through the way she's representing this. And she's also known for not writing about what she didn't know. So famously, she doesn't have any scenes where there are just men in the room because she'd never, she would never know what how men would talk to each other um, when there's no women present. So there's a real legitimacy there, but it makes it a very limited view. So it's confined to the upper classes and the sort of upper middle classes. It's to domestic concerns, to the female experience. And though we can see these glimpses of darker corners of the Regency world, she doesn't really delve into that reality of poverty and infant mortality and disease and war and all of this. Um, And that's a conscious decision on her part. She doesn't want to make things up and she doesn't want to dwell on misery. You know, she says this in a letter, I think. So I think that, you know, it is a great starting point, but it's important to remember that they are fiction Um, And her stories are the product of a woman's imagination. And they're also designed to appeal to people um, and to to sell books, essentially, um, among a particular type of audience. And I think that can get lost in the fandom that surrounds her. And one thing I would say is that I would recommend anyway is to, if you're interested in Austin, to really read her letters as well as her fiction, because you actually get a better sense of the reality of her life and what it was to be a woman of her class in that time. Um, She's got a really wicked sense of humour. So she's making jokes about going into London and being seduced into a life of sex work by a brothel keeper. And she jokes about a woman having a miscarriage because her husband is so ugly and it's just this side this wicked really side of Austin that is completely sanitized and polished um, and never made it into the novels so um, it's best to see that side of her that's probably not deemed fit for public consumption (laughs) great stuff yeah I'm definitely going to go check out those letters now that sounds brilliant um so taking it back into the realms of perhaps those those darker sides you mentioned that she doesn't touch on um I realise this is a very, very big question, um, but perhaps we can use it up as a jumping off point for for, for other things. Um, the, one of the top questions put to Google is, is what was life like for women in the Regency era? So I guess uh, it's up to you how we approach the, the, the answer to this. OK, um, yeah, I'll, cover, I'll try to cover all bases. Um, but obviously, yeah, the experience of life during the Regency as a woman would hugely vary depending on you know across the classes so towards the top this more austin realm um you know it is really dictated by this etiquette um women's lives and behaviors supposedly you know held together by these social codes but actually i think some of the most memorable women from this era are those who acted outside 
you know, beyond those bounds. So, for example, the courtesan Harriet Wilson, who's had a string of lovers throughout the Regency era. As she gets older, though, obviously her beauty's fading, her charms of, are leaving her. Um, so she decides to publish a tell-all biography, autobiography, and she blackmails uh, all of her former lovers, obviously trying to raise funds for herself, but, you know, promising a better review of their behaviour in her book. Um, she's a brilliant character. We've also got Lady Caroline Lamb, who's obviously most notorious for her affair with Lord Byron and her hugely wildly eccentric behaviour during their affair and also afterwards, and she's sort of refusing to um, believe, to accept that the relationship's over. Even figures like Mary Shelley, who elopes with a married man and then does the very unladylike thing of writing a novel about reanimated corpses. Um, you know, these are the sort of names, with these anti-traditional names that live on for us because we find them so fascinating. Lower down the pecking order, women are obviously not so dictated by etiquette. They don't have anything like the privilege um, of these upper class women. So I think the difference between the sexes is less marked in terms of coded behaviour and less enforced. And here in the middling classes, we can find women in trades, especially if they've been in business with their husband who's died or been trained up by their father or brother or something like this. So we do find them um, getting involved in business, which I think is really interesting and not often um, touched upon. But then we can also find women appearing in court being brilliantly defiant pickpockets and murderers and all of this. So there's loads of sources for the lower classes Um lower class women and middle class women but I think what unites them all regardless of their class is their legal status and their lack of power in the eyes of the law so once a woman's married she ceases to be a legal entity on her own terms all her property goes to her husband and this includes her children so she's got no rights over her children she can't divorce without proving extreme physical cruelty, um, where a man would just have to prove adultery. So they're endlessly at the mercy of men um, in, in endless ways, really, during this era. So although in the 18th century, we've seen these female voices starting to speak about um, the need for women's rights and trying to give evidence for women's intellectual capabilities being on a par with men if only they could get the right education we've got these books coming out um but they still haven't quite got those rights yet you know they haven't they're not seeing the concrete results of that so this double standard of um gender relations i suppose between men and women is is very much still life defining at this point mm -hmm. we've obviously talked about a very broad um, question there with lots of um, variety. This question a bit more niche. Ella West on on Instagram has asked, and I'm not sure where this stat comes from, but they've asked, was the amount of women who made a living through sex work really as high as one in five? Yes, I think this one has been made quite public knowledge by um, Harlots recently, the, the, I think it's BBC show. Um, and it is a very neat statistic. Um, I, but I don't think we can take it at face value. I think it comes from a report of 1795. And it's drawn up by a magistrate called Patrick Cahoon. And he basically 
sets about London uh, to survey the extent of the sex industry in London in the 1790s. And he comes up with this estimate of there are 50,000 women in London who are selling sex. 20,000 of those are working full time. That's their profession. And 30,000 working on a more casual basis. So it might be during unemployment or something like that. Um, And then from the total estimated population of the city, he extrapolates that this means one women in five. Um, so it's very it's very neatly done. Um, first of all, I think it's only London focused. So, um, you know, I always like to try and extend the range of history beyond the history of London. Um, secondly, it's very reliant on this one man's hugely, I think they must be hugely generalised estimates or guesses. I really don't know how he went about his research on this one, actually. So sex work was a very visible part of Regency life um, in the lower classes and in the upper classes, but I don't think we'll ever be able to measure it um, accurately. So I would take that with a liberal pinch of salt. So if people want to find out more, you've written on the Georgian Bawdy House and, and there's there's plenty more out there. What, what would you point people towards to find out more about that? Um, yes, I have my little introductory pamphlet I suppose which is quite an odd thing to have about um the work of Hallie Rubenhold is excellent and I think there's a new edition of her Covent Garden Ladies coming out soon so I would recommend that um for really I mean that's a bit earlier that's the 18th century really but um it really sets the scene really well for what life was like for these women and the men who was getting involved in this trade as well both as workers and as sort of clients I think um so that's a really good starting off point I think in the 18th century and in the regency there there is this class divide again in this industry but um it's very prevalent it's everywhere you know the sex industry it's a very sort of rollicking time certainly they like to think of themselves that way um very sort of sexually open I suppose but um women who were working in sex work, they, they were there to cater for any taste and for any price, because obviously all men would consider this quite a normal thing to do. Um, so in terms of sort of dedicated brothels, you could get anything from a dirty garret lodging, where you just go back there for an hour and then zip off again, um, and paying them a pint of wine to these luxurious palatial premises where women were speaking French and playing the harp and having you know, conversations about political or current affairs and all of this. So, um, yeah, it was a hugely uh, a hugely visible part of the Regency world. Um, I think the reality, though, was very grim for a lot of these women themselves. Mm. Okay. Um, and another question, which deals with um, the reality of, of women's lives in this period. Um, a little bit of Sarah on Instagram has asked about menstruation products. Um, they've asked, what did women use? How available was it? And what was it made of? This is a very specific question. It's a great question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I've actually, I've come across virtually no evidence for this. I think it's a bit of a mystery. I think perhaps partly because it was such an everyday issue, it's not something that you would necessarily commit to paper. Also, the the sort of standards of politeness and, um, you know, delicacy, this wasn't necessarily something you'd want to be discussing openly. And it wasn't biological enough to discuss in the medical textbooks, which are obviously all written by men as well. So they don't want to concern themselves too much with how women actually deal with it. 
I think one big difficulty that immediately leaps to mind is that women at this time generally didn't really wear knickers. So there must have been some completely dedicated garment or contraption or something to deal with this. So there are some mentions of what are called women's napkins being sent out for laundry. Um, So that could refer to some sort of nappy-like garment, I suppose. Um, Later on, there are speculations later in the century, I think that they're sort of suggest this piece of cloth that's held in place with tape and then tape tied around the waist as well. So that's sort of a a rag, essentially some sort of textile rag held in place. Um, None of it sounds very comfortable. And um, to me, there's nothing definitive either. So I would be very interested to hear if any listeners have found some diary somewhere that uh, describes exactly what they would have been using. Yeah, I wonder. Well, uh, maybe someone will get in touch after listening. Who knows? Um, so taking it a bit away from, from the knickers and more outward into other, other fashion, um, fashion, uh, you've already mentioned in, in quite a few of your answers now is, is a big part of this period. Um, a lot of people have asked about it as well. Um, what can you say about, um, men's and women's fashion in the Regency period? Yeah, this is another thing, another place where we see a huge change really. So from the 1780s through to the 1820s, there's this huge change in male and female fashion. And I think this is often reflecting or responding to wider events, which you wouldn't at first think might have anything to do with how you dress, but we've got this neoclassical aesthetic sort of inspired by the ancient world, which sweeps across Europe. Um, We've got the French Revolution happening again, which just has such huge cultural reach. Um, We've got military trappings of war, and then we've got peace allowing us to sort of like France again and and sort of what's going on over there. So... um, Often as well, it's just people, it's simply a reaction against the previous generation and people not wanting to seem old-fashioned. So in terms of menswear, we have this effeminate, almost, extravagance of the 18th century macaroni, as they were called. So this is those towering wigs. um, They've got little red heels on, pastel-coloured silk suits and all these gems and all of this. And that makes way for this 19th century dandy, um, which is, I suppose, more akin to what we would see if we, you know, in Pride and Prejudice, where it's more sober colours, um, the wigs have gone, tailoring, good tailoring is replace, replacing frilly cuffs. Um, and we've got the arrival of the top hat as well, which supposedly set women fainting in the streets when they saw this monstrous garment on gentlemen's heads. Um, And then trousers and pantaloons come in. So it's all more practical wear, I think. Um, And it's all more fashionably democratic looking as well after, you know, all of this change that's going on in France and revolution. In women's wear, again, from the 1790s, we see this rising empire waistline. Um, It's a much more fitted silhouette and it's more focused on white and pale colours. So it's quite statuesque you know it's to do with this neoclassical ideal um you know these women are looking it's almost like a sort of greek statue with the revolution as well that sort of undercuts this former taste for glitz and ostentatious displays of wealth which obviously you don't want to be doing um in these new political circumstances so it becomes all much more natural um and then in the 1820s obviously the reaction goes back the other way and things start widening out again so there's this real mix of reasons for why these these new fashions are coming in. And I think they're also fueled by the rise of 
print and of fashion plates. So it's almost like the catwalk or um, fashion magazines today where among the upper classes, what you wear says a lot about um, your good taste or your bad taste, um, the your modern values and um, also of your wealth. So even though the looks themselves changed, I think that the impulse for the upper classes at the heart of it is probably quite similar. Right. And, and a question perhaps uh, linked to how the trends change there. Um, Teresa R88 on Instagram has asked about Beau Brummel um, and asked, was he really that influential in Regency men's fashion? So perhaps we could say who who, who Brummel was and, and, and was he influential? Yeah. So Beau Brummel, um, his name is is synonymous now almost with Regency fashion, but I, I don't think he really did much else, to be honest. I think he had a military background and somehow comes to the attention of, of the Prince Regent or the Prince of Wales, I think, as he is at that point, and sort of is sent to the heart of fashionable society. But he's associated with that dandyism of the early 19th century in, in a sort of way where you spend absolutely hours and a complete fortune on just looking perfectly understated I think that was his sort of aesthetic but he's a very sociable man as I say he's a great friend for a time of the Prince Regent so um, his lifelong obsession with appearance gradually is adopted by those higher above him in rank who are wanting to you know how dare this this upstart look better than I do sort of impulse I reckon but I do think he's sometimes credited with too much so this swing towards sober colours um, tighter silhouettes is already in force I think when he comes to prominence um, so he's not inventing this look but I do think he perfects it and that's where his influence really comes in um, and his example I think it allowed the upper classes to you know obviously they're used to being extravagant and the fashions are changing around them and his example allows them to set themselves apart um, even though they don't have all this normal glitz that they've had in previous generations so this is a man who recommended polishing your boots with champagne for example which is obviously going to make them feel much better about themselves um but certainly he's got a huge influence on the prince who apparently would just sit in Brummel's dressing room and watch him be dressed for hours so I think if he's got that fascination then that will inevitably trickle down as well to um the rest of society okay great um there's a really great question here and I think it might um might uh, link to what you were saying before about the period before things got simpler. But um, Sarah Parkin has asked on Instagram, how often did they wash? And and were they were their hair pieces really full of bugs? <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I think this is a hugely personal thing, really. I would find it difficult to generalise on this. Obviously, Brummel himself, he was very keen on being clean um, without all this perfumery that was normally relied upon. So he supposedly bathed every day. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I've been working on the Byron family of the 18th century and Isabella, who's um, formerly a Byron, she's the Countess of Carlisle, she releases a handbook for young ladies in 1789 and she says, on no occasion relax in the article of cleanliness regarding your own person and that it's as much to do with health as it is to do with looking nice and decorum. So I think there is that knowledge that you should be washing yourself. But um, there are suggestions um, in, in other guides and from physicians of the Regency era that most English women are ignorant of baths that are larger than a hand basin. So even though they should be, 
um, having frequent baths. They don't have one, so they're not doing it. Um, and that men and women of London would wash their hands every day, their faces every day, but the rest of their body would be neglected from year to year, which sounds dreadful. But um, this was sort of the conclusion of one physician of the time. So who really knows? Um, there, there was, there was no deodorant. Uh, soap was a luxury. I think whatever the case, it certainly would have smelled very bad. Um, as for lice, I think that's probably inevitable across all classes. So in the 18th century, you've got those towering wigs, highly susceptible, I suppose, to, to lice. They might be perfumed or powdered rather than even being washed. Um, but this, this might have improved, I suppose, when things get more natural in the Regency. Um, but they're washing their hair with lard-based products, sort of pomades, um, and then rinsing it with rum. So I don't really know what would survive at that point. But then again, it's very personal and we don't know how often they were doing it. So, um, but, but as it would take hours to get your hair dressed, I can't imagine it would be happening too often. Yeah. Wow. Polishing boots with champagne and washing hair with rum. There's a uh, lot, lots going on there. Um, so, so taking it uh, away perhaps from, from, from the more, more personal broadening out a little bit again. Um, Dial Gaboy, I think, uh, that's how you pronounce it, um, has asked on Instagram, um, why did the arts appear to flourish during this era? You've already talked about the king's spending on it, the king's pa- patronage of that. Well, can we talk a bit about art in this, this period? Yeah, so I think the arts really did flourish in Britain um, in this time. And I think in part because there were such new and distinctive styles emerging and competing with each other almost um, in the visual and decorative arts, but also in sort of shifting cultural ideologies that are providing inspiration as well for writers. Um, So there's all this inspiration being provoked by dramatic traumatic events like the French Revolution again um, and the subsequent wars. So throughout the 18th century, we've had this very ornate, gilded, heavy Baroque and Rococo style. So it's all sort of Palace of Versailles. Um, It's very theatrical. It's designed to show off your wealth and your status. Um, But this loses favour towards the latter half of the 18th century. And we get this enthusiasm, as I've mentioned earlier, for the neoclassical. So that's in architecture, in design, in fashion. Um, It's sort of just a wave of enthusiasm, basically, for the aesthetic of the classical world. So everything becomes very symmetrical. It's very clean. It's a lot less fussy, essentially. And this, I think, in part, is linked to... um, archaeological discoveries in the 18th century of Pompeii, um, for one, and also by this growing popularity of young gents jetting off around Europe on their grand tours and then coming back with souvenirs um, of the ancient world. And then alongside this, and almost competing with it, I think in many ways, we've got the development of romanticism. um, And it's this rejection of the industrial for the natural and the emotional. So it's, again, a reaction against what's been going on throughout the 18th century. And this filters into literature, art, music. Um, so all these ideas are blossoming, really, and it's just a perfect moment, I think, for creativity in general. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I, I guess we should mention Byron as well and his house. Um, do you want to say a little bit about them? Because I know this is uh, close to your heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess, I mean, this is linked in with the this trend towards romanticism. So as I say, this 
develops towards the end of the 18th century. It's this movement and it really leans towards this affinity with nature and the elevation of emotions after these generations, as they would see it, of sort of the march of cold reason and and industrial character of the 18th century, where, where they're not really seeing any raw beauty in that sort of sterile world. So it's a reaction against that. So in, in Britain, um, in the 1780s and 90s, the big names we've got there are Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake. And these they're evoking a really emotionally charged new vision, essentially, I would say, of, of the world and humanity. Um, and then into the Regency era, we've got this new, younger generation of romantics. And the big names there would be Byron and Shelley and Keats. And they're basically marching about, certainly Byron and Shelley, setting hearts aflutter with these appealing ideas about nature and beauty and being in love, um, but also with these exciting, radical ideas, or at least very anti-traditional ways of life. So they're really capturing the public's attention with that. Um, I think it probably helps that they are quite scandalous. Um, Thinking of Byron and Shelley, you know, they really captured the public imagination, as I say, they made a name for themselves with their personalities and their beliefs as well as their poetry. And and I think the popularity of that is a, in a wider sense, it's part of this reaction against industrialization and and leading into this sort of revolutionary spirit. You know, they weren't just writing for the upper classes. They weren't stuffy and boring. Um, The themes they're dealing with are nature and the fall of kings and the all of governments and the power of the people and all of this. So they're much more relevant for um, and inspiring to a a wider audience, I think. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned um, architecture as well, um, flourishing in this period. And I wondered if we could talk a bit about what characterises Regency era architecture. And and obviously at the moment, we're in the middle of a pandemic that means people aren't travelling as much or at all, um, but if they can or, or when they can, where could people see, um, explore examples of this? Where should, where could people look to that? Yeah, so um, I mean, this this had started with the sort of neoclassical in the 18th century, and then through into Regency. I think it gets a bit more lavish, um, but there are there are a lot of towns in Britain that that really showcase this style. So Bath comes to mind. Um, there's some, I mean, I'm thinking of Brighton, but Brighton Pavilion, I mean, that's maybe not quite so representative. That's more maybe indicative of the prince himself and his tastes. Um, sort of all the spa towns, you can see these sort of Regency townhouses, um, London, obviously. But it's, it's, I think they're gorgeous. And I think that you, you know, I met many people would still see them as sort of the height of a sort of classiness, I suppose. And it is that as I say, a very clean-looking, symmetrical aesthetic that I think is just inevitably very pleasing. But there's loads of places you can um, visit around the country when we're allowed out, <laughs> as you say. <laughs> how, how do we bookend it? What? How does it come to an end? Yeah, I'm, I mean, by I mean, really, by the end of the sort of what we'd call the Hanoverian era or the Georgian era I suppose finishes with George the fourth sometimes stretching out to poor old William the fourth who's his brother who inherits after him who tends to get forgotten um it's not very interesting I'll probably get attacked by someone for saying that um but then we see the rise of uh, Victoria and Queen Victoria is the niece of 
um, the Prince Regent and of William IV. And when she comes into power, um, you know, it, in a way it kicks off and in a way is just linked in with a very different sort of character um, for the country that they're trying to promote. So it really does. We do see a huge change in public perceptions of the monarchy, for example, with the rise of Victoria. She's very popular, whereas everyone seems to be very bored with these old, extravagant Hanoverian men being in power. You know, they were really looking forward to Princess Charlotte. Um, but, you know, they don't get her, but they do get a young queen who then sets such a good example in relative terms, in terms of um, what she represents for family values. And, um, you know, we also see the sort of rise in Christian values, I suppose, sort of evangelical Christian ideas, um, which take more of a grip, I think, and she sets a great example there. Um, so again, I think it's just this reaction of reaction against previous generations and it's sort of morally speaking and wanting to see yourself as a bit of an improvement um and, and also the sort of popular campaigns for reform are really gaining a bit of traction you know they have been doing over the later regency era um and uh campaigns for suffrage and we also have the the political stranglehold of the Tory party. You know, they don't disappear, but they sort of, it eases off a bit. So with Whig um, leadership coming sort of in and out into that era, there's more um, opportunity for reform and change there as well. So I just think the spirit of the era is, is hugely different um, after the, you know, with the coming of Queen Victoria. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, it, it's clearly a uh, period which still continues to to fascinate and for many of the reasons that we've talked about. Um, but if I can ask you, perhaps personally, and then maybe with feedback to your to, to your work on this period as well, why, why do you think it does continue to fascinate? I think in, in general terms, I do think we're in the grip of this Austin mania since still. So I think that will uh, persist. Um, and I think that's great and fine and I think that uh maybe that's a starting point into learning more about it that's all like you know that's what I hope um where that leads I think this obviously it focuses on the upper classes aesthetically as I say it's very pleasing it's very familiar to us but then at the same time it's very racy and radical time and that's sort of where I get hooked in by it I think um and I think the very best representations of the era really capture some of that you know it's not stuffy we've got the romantics railing against the world really um we've got all these sexual frissons going on and, and adultery everywhere um i'm sure it's the case most of the time but they were quite open about it being an age of adultery um obviously with my background in romantic history you know that will appeal to me um so it's sort of gorgeous on the surface and then it's quite scandalous underneath um but then it's a world of contrasts as well. So you've got this height of luxury against real depravity and, and uh, crippling poverty, rather, of the lower classes. And that's underpinned by war and um, and struggle as well, class struggle towards the end of the Regency. So it's just fascinating. Um, I think it's a time social change is really beginning to drive forward. So there are loads of hooks, if you like, into it, um, whether it's women's rights and women's history or scandal and seduction or uh, you know great works of literature um it's endless really so uh 
yes, I think there are many reasons why. (laughs) That was Emily Brand. Her latest book, The Fall of the House of Byron, is published by John Murray and is out now. You can find another podcast with Emily discussing the Byrons, along with a feature on their family scandals at historyextra.com forward slash scandalous hyphen Byrons. If you're interested in the Regency era, on the 12th of November, we'll be hosting a virtual lecture from Ian Mortimer on his book, The Time Traveller's Guide to Regency Britain. You can find out more and register for the talk on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash virtual hyphen lecture. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Sean Evans will be speaking about women in the golden age of transatlantic travel. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.